Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I wonder if any of you are familiar with the name Harold Camping. Harold Camping. Well, Harold Camping was a Christian. He was an American. He was an evangelist. He was also the popular host of a, of a radio show called Family Radio. But what Harold Camping was perhaps best known for were his predictions of the end of the world, his predictions of the return of Jesus Christ. Camping first predicted that this would happen on September 6, 1994. Later, he predicted that this would happen on, on May 21, 2011. And then finally, he predicted one last time that this would happen on October 21, 2011. And I think the fact that we are all gathered here this morning is living proof to the fact that Harold Camping was wrong. Despite his best efforts and his best work and his best calculations, Harold Camping was forced to face the truth that Jesus Christ was teaching in Matthew 24, and that was the fact that no one knows the day or the hour. Now I find sometimes, even as Christians, it can be a little bit tempting for us to laugh at someone like Harold Camping, to mock his predictions. But you know, the one thing that we can say for Harold Camping is that at least he was looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. At least he was living with an eye on eternity. Well, what about you? Is that something that you can say for yourself this morning? Do you have a great desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ come back? Do you want the King to return? Are you living with an eye on eternity? Or has it been too long? After 2,000 years, has your attention begun to waver? Do you find yourself focusing a lot more on the here and now, on the present, on the day-to-day, -day, than you do on what is to come? Well, if that is the case for you, as I think it sometimes is for all of us, then we need to consider today's text a serious warning. Because the gospel tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is coming. And it warns us that we need to be ready. And that's how I've summarized God's word this morning. Be ready, for the bridegroom is coming. I'd like to look at three things this morning. First, I'd like to look at the nature, the background of this wedding feast. Secondly, the preparation for this wedding feast. And then finally, the actual entrance to this wedding feast. Now, the text begins in verse 1 by, by introducing us to the parable Building upon the last portion of Matthew 24, the parable begins by stating that at that time, then, that is the time of the return of the Son of Man, at that time, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who go out to meet the bridegroom. Now the details of verse 1 also combined with an explicit reference in verse 10 it makes it clear that this entire narrative, this entire account is taking place to the background of a wedding feast. And the interesting thing is that it's not the first time Jesus has told a parable about a wedding feast. 
You might remember that just a couple chapters earlier, Matthew 22, Jesus introduces another parable, and he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And then that parable goes on to describe how all of these guests come up with these lame reasons, these lame excuses as to why they can't attend. But Jesus is using these parables to clearly illustrate that the triumphal return of the Son of Man will be celebrated by a feast. It will be celebrated by a great feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb described in Revelations 19. And like Jesus does with all parables, Jesus is, is clearly using an illustration that people would connect with. When Jesus is using the language of the bride and the groom and the wedding feast, he's using language and he's using imagery that people would understand, that people would relate to. But he's also using the language of Scripture. For on many occasions in the Old Testament, we see God referring to, to the relationship between him and his people as the relationship between a, between a husband and a wife, or, or as the relationship between a bride and a groom. And it is clear from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus Christ, he saw his relationship with his people in exactly the same way. I think of a passage like Matthew 9. Matthew 9 is a passage that describes this, this argument, this debate that, that arises among the disciples over fasting. And Jesus responds to that debate, and he says this. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come, says Jesus, when the bridegroom, that is himself, will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so like the passage from Matthew 9, Jesus is clearly using this passage in Matthew 25 to make clear that he himself is the bridegroom. And yet, to truly understand this parable this morning, we need to be extremely cautious that we don't think of this wedding in terms of our modern wedding context. Because a traditional Jewish wedding was much different than what we see today. A traditional Jewish wedding ceremony was often arranged well, well in advance by the parents of the bride and the groom. If you want to think of what that might look like today, it would be like my wife and I already now, today, going out and looking for a partner for our, our eight-year-old son or our six-year-old daughter. It would be like us going out and, and meeting with families, talking with parents, finding a suitable family, and signing a legally binding marriage contract. But the actual wedding ceremony, the thing that we think of so often today, it wouldn't occur often until years later. And that day would typically begin with, with the groom and maybe even some of his friends traveling across town and going to the home of the bride or presumably the bride's father. And once there, a, a few more ceremonies would occur that would finally confirm that marriage contract. And then at the end of it all, at the end of it all, there would be this great processional. There would be this processional that kind of wound its way back to the groom's house where this great feast, this great celebration would be held to celebrate the beginning of the bride and groom's life together. 
And that processional would typically occur at night. And so when we think of this parable this morning, it's the context of this type of wedding and the context of this processional in particular that we need to keep in mind. And we need to notice as well that Jesus in this parable, he draws our attention to a particular group of guests. Ten virgins, he says. And the use of the word virgin here is simply meant to imply that this was a group of young women, a group who may have played a role somewhat similar to the role of modern bridesmaids today. This is a group that has clearly received an invitation to the wedding feast. And unlike those guests in Matthew 22, they don't come up with lame excuses as to why they can't be there. No, they want to be there. They want to be at the wedding feast. We're told that they are preparing to go out and meet the bridegroom. And the description of this wedding and the description of these guests in particular is important because Jesus is using them to highlight who he's targeting with his message. See, in this parable, in this parable, Jesus is not sending a message to those who have outright rejected the invitation of the groom. No, instead, this parable, this parable has a message for those who have received the invitation of the groom. This is a message to those whom Jesus has been speaking to throughout his ministry, those who have heard his message and those who appear to receive it. And if we want to draw this forward and see what it says today, there is no doubt that this is a passage with a clear, clear warning for the church of Jesus Christ. It is a warning to those who have heard the gospel. It has a warning for those who know of the message of Jesus Christ, those who know of his suffering and his death, those who know of his promised return. It's a message that appearances are not enough. Because the text goes on to explain that while all of these guests have received an invitation to the wedding feast, not all of them are truly prepared to go. And so it is that in verse 2, Jesus really begins to get into the core of the parable's message. And he does so by explaining that there is a critical difference between these ten virgins. Five of them he describes as wise. And five of them he describes as foolish. And their wisdom, or their lack thereof, is illustrated in this parable by the fact that not all of them have truly, truly prepared themselves to go to this wedding feast. Now again, you need to remember that this processional would typically arrive at night. And so each of these guests was required to have a lamp so that they could find their way along in the dark. And such a lamp, it's maybe, maybe better thought of as, as a torch. It could be something like a large stick with oil-soaked rags wrapped around the end that could be lit on fire to provide light. And the text is clear that all of these guests have made sure to take such a lamp along. But only five of them 
have planned ahead. Only five have taken along extra containers of oil. Now, ordinarily, ordinarily, there should not have been a problem for any of the guests. But we're told that in the case of this parable, the bridegroom and the processional, they are delayed. In fact, they are delayed so long that eventually all of the guests grow tired and they fall asleep. But finally, the bridegroom does come. We're told that in the middle of the night, a cry goes out. A cry goes out, the bridegroom is coming, come out to meet him. And it is at this point that the foolish virgins begin to recognize that they have a problem. You see, because they all get up and they all start to adjust or to trim their lights. And the foolish virgins, they begin to see that, that their lights are going out. And so they, they, they turn to these wise virgins and they say, hey, can, can, you, can you share some of your oil with us? But the wise virgins refuse, and it's not because they're, they're rude or, or cold-hearted or compassionless. It's because they recognize that if they share their oil, none of them would have enough. None of their lamps would remain lit long enough. None of them would ultimately make it to the wedding feast. And so it is that the arrival of the bridegroom actually highlights the core of this parable's message. And it is the message that Jesus has been repeating time and again in Matthew 24. Because you see, these foolish virgins, they thought they knew the day and the hour when the bridegroom would arrive. But they were not prepared for his delay. They were so confident that they knew when the bridegroom was coming, they hadn't even thought about bringing any extra oil. You could say that they were like the foolish builder in Matthew 7, the one who built his house upon the sand, not giving any thought to what the future might hold. But the wise virgins, they were like the wise builder of Matthew 7, the one who built his house on the rock. They wanted to be at that wedding feast so bad that they were prepared for whatever the future might hold. They were prepared if the bridegroom was delayed. They were willing to wait because they knew and they trusted that the bridegroom was coming. And you know, it's in this portion of the parable that Jesus Christ teaches a couple of very important lessons. In the first place, there is a clear, clear call here to all believers that we need to be prepared. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, what does that actually mean? Practically speaking, what does it actually mean to be prepared? Well, ultimately, Jesus Christ is demanding that we live that we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven already today. Jesus Christ is calling us to a close, a personal, a committed relationship to him as king. A life that is driven and that is motivated by the grace and the mercy offered in Jesus Christ. A life in which our deepest, deepest desire is one day to join him at the wedding feast.
as Christians, we need to live every day looking forward to the Lord's return, and we need to strive to be prepared. And that means we need to pray that the Spirit of God would be at work in us. We need to pray that the Spirit would be at work in the lives of our children. And we need to be where the Spirit is working. And what I mean is this, we need to, we need to be in the Word. We need to be people who are in prayer. We need to be people who are here under the preaching of the Word. We need to be people who are walking in step with the Spirit. We need to be people who are leading lives that are producing the fruits of the Spirit. We cannot. We cannot be people who have an attitude of indifference towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, as Paul warns us, one day, perhaps when we least expect it, we are going to have to give an account before the judgment seat of the Lord, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And he is going to ask us, were you prepared? Please note, please note this morning that he is not going to ask you did you surround yourself with those who were prepared? Please note this morning that he is not going to ask you, did you come here every Sunday and park yourself in the pew beside those who were prepared? He is going to ask you, were you personally, individually prepared? You know, the one thing you notice about this parable is that the preparedness of the wise virgins, it is of zero value to those who are unprepared. Each person individually must be prepared for the arrival of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we seriously consider that today. Also, as we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, please recognize, please recognize today that it will not be enough. It will not be enough to say that you grew up in a godly home. It will not be enough to say that you had godly parents. It won't be enough. It will not be enough to say that you had a Christian education. It will not be enough to say that you came here every week and you faithfully attended church. It's not even going to be enough to stand there and say, Lord, Lord, I, I'm just going to point to my baptism. Those things in and of themselves, they will not be enough when the Lord Jesus Christ asks you, were you prepared? Did you believe in me? Did you trust me? Were you willing to wait for me? Did you ultimately believe that I, Jesus Christ, was the only one 
the only one who could get you into the wedding feast. In the closing verses of our text, Jesus Christ teaches one last critical lesson. And it's a lesson that he has taught elsewhere. You can think of John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This parable closes by reiterating the great truth of Christianity, that salvation, life eternal, access to the wedding feast, if you will, it can be found in no one else except the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the truth of the gospel. That's the truth. And it is a truth that divides. And that divisiveness is something that Jesus has pointed out time and again in Matthew 24. Some will believe it. Some will not. Some will be taken. Some will not. Some will be saved. And some will be left in the darkness. And as the parable concludes, that great truth is repeated one last time. For you see, we're told that while these foolish virgins, while they are gone to buy more oil, we're told that the bridegroom comes. And he clearly carries on without them. He doesn't wait. He doesn't excuse their lack of preparation because of his delay. No, he expected them to be ready, whether he was delayed or not. And so it is. So it is that only the five wise virgins, only those who were prepared, so it is that only they enter the wedding feast. And then we read these words, and the door was shut. You know, there's a heaviness. There is a finality about those words. In many ways, those words take us back to Genesis 7, to the story of Noah and the ark. There we have a story of Noah and his family, those who heard the word of the Lord, those who, who received the warnings of the Lord, those who believed, those who prepared, those who built the ark, and they entered the ark. And then we are told that in time, the Lord came and he shut the door. And you know, you can, you can better believe the fact that, that later on, later on when the rain came, and as the water began to rise, you can bet that those people who mocked Noah, those who laughed at him, those who ridiculed his preparations, you can bet that suddenly they realized we should have prepared. We should have believed. They were probably banging on the door of the ark. But it was too late. There was no second chance for those who failed to believe. And sadly, that is the case in this parable as well. Because we're told later that these foolish virgins, that they do finally make it to the wedding feast, and they bang on the door, and they say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But the bridegroom simply comes to the door, and he says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Can you imagine their shock? 
Can you imagine for a minute their shock? Here they were. They thought they were going to the wedding feast. They thought everything was okay. They'd received the invitation. They had all these plans. And yet suddenly they are left outside. They're left in the darkness. And I think we should note, as we wrap up this morning, I think we should note that it was not the preparedness alone of the wise virgins that gave them access to the wedding feast. And what I mean is this. Yes, they had to receive an invitation to the wedding feast. And yes, they had to prepare to go to the wedding feast. But ultimately, to enter that wedding feast, you needed one thing. And that was you had to arrive with the bridegroom. Apart from the bridegroom, there is no entrance. Apart from the bridegroom, one is left in the darkness. And brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing. Nothing. You can prepare all you want. You can work at your tasks all you want. But if you do not unite yourself to Jesus Christ by faith, if you don't embrace Him as your righteousness, if you don't hold to Him, like he's everything that you want and everything that you need, then you will not enter the wedding feast. And so I pray, I pray today that we would all take those words to heart. That we would reflect deeply on the warning of Jesus Christ to keep watch and to be prepared. Because as God's covenant community, we have received an invitation to the wedding feast. Most of us have received that invitation already at baptism. We have received the promises of life, the promises of God, promises that he would be with us and he would lead us and he would guide us by his spirit. But with those promises also come a call and an obligation to be ready, to be prepared. And we cannot take that call lightly. And you know, I fear, I fear greatly that there lives in our churches, and maybe I could say even especially in our youth, there lives an attitude that we're going to get serious about faith later. And I know, I know because I've seen it in my own life. This attitude that says, Lord, I'm going to get serious about my faith once I'm done high school. Lord, I'm going to get serious about my faith once I've lived out my university days. Lord, I am going to get serious about faith when I get married. And that is exactly the attitude that Jesus Christ is warning against in this parable because we don't know the day or the hour. Maybe Jesus Christ comes back tomorrow when you're at work. He's going to ask you, are you ready? 
Maybe he's going to come back this week while you're, while you're out on the basketball court or the volleyball court or when you're out at the rink. Maybe, maybe just maybe he'll come, out, he'll come back when you're, when you're out at the yearly hockey tournament. He's going to ask you, are you ready? Maybe Jesus Christ is going to come back when you're out on the weekend somewhere or doing something that is God's covenant Children, you ought not to be. Make no mistake, he is going to ask you, are you ready? What's your answer going to be? Are you, are you going to say, Lord, well, I work in the construction industry, you see, and that's, that's how everybody talks, right? Those are the jokes that everybody tells. Are you going to say, Lord, I work in the business sector, and well, that's just how we get deals done, everybody Everybody does it. Are you going to say, Lord, we're just a bunch of guys. We're just a bunch of girls. Just being silly. Lord, it's just sports. Are you going to say, Lord, I'm not the only one doing it. Take a look around. Everybody else is doing it too. Are you ultimately going to be forced to say, Lord, I wasn't ready. Lord, I hadn't expected you. Lord, you were not supposed to come back now. Brothers and sisters, we all need to take to heart the warning of this passage. To keep watch and to be prepared. Because the word of God is true and faithful. And the word of God tells us that the bridegroom is coming. And the word of God also tells us that he has a feast. He has a celebration in store for us. And he's invited us to be there. He has a feast beyond what we can imagine. A celebration that is beyond anything we could think of. Of life of hope, of eternity with him in his presence. And it's not because of who we are. It's not because of how deserving we are. It's not because we have done so well at being prepared. But it is because of the bridegroom. It's because of the bridegroom, because of what he's done. It's because he's let, he stands there and he holds the door open. That door between death and life and the bridegroom holds it open. And he allows us to pass through. That is the gospel in all its beauty of God's grace towards undeserving sinners. That is the truth. A gospel that tells us of hope. A gospel that tells us of life. A gospel that promises us eternity. A gospel that tells us that the bridegroom is coming. And the question it forces all of us to ask today is are we ready? Amen.